You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey, Robert. On today's episode, we talk with James Prescott about grief, faith, and how those can intertwine to shape our lives, as well as hearing a a, a good bit of his story. But first, Mm -hmm. Holly, how are you today? I am doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I know you were just uh, you just asked if I could hear birds because you have the window open because it's getting a little nicer. And so you said, I'll go close it. And I said, no, no. So if you hear some birds, I don't think I haven't heard them yet. But if you hear them, it'll just be a nice, you know, we'll be a fancy produced podcast with background (laughs) noise and some cool some uh, environment like backdrop of spring finally being here. Yeah. No, I love it. It's I mean, I open the windows because it's raining out today. And it's not so Mm. cold. Like it's just cool enough that like it feels really good. I can hear the birds now. I don't know if you can hear them. But but I just I don't know. I love this time of year. Like spring is my favorite time of year. Um, And I I'm just so glad that we are on the other side of winter. And and we're going to get to watch everything change in front of us in the next couple of months. So that's kind of cool. So, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. But well, yeah, we've been, been I mean, we've been yeah. doing okay. Yeah, we've been okay. I know I've been telling you a little bit. I can't remember if I told you. Did I mention this on like the, the last um, episode or one of them? About my elbow? Yes, you did that. Yes, so Emmy's episode that uh, released last week, we talked about you were coming off spring break and you took break literally. Yes, that's right. That is right. Thank you for reminding me. Well, you know, now my friends, we are leaning into a week. Well, by the time this comes out, it'll be week three, I think, of Broken Elbow. And it was kind of fun at first. And I still say, like, I don't regret (laughs) it. But now I'm like, okay, this is really hard to function like having a an arm in a sling all the time but you know yeah. it's fine so yeah it's okay but we're we're just we're making it so yeah i am celebrating i forgot to mention this before i am celebrating that finally the copies of the soul of the helper are now shipping out through amazon so mm-hmm. that's really exciting cuz that took a little bit but um you know thank you supply chain issues and covid you know, impacting staff and shipping mm-hmm. delays and all the things. Yeah. But like friends who ordered copies through Amazon are now finally getting it and sending me pictures of it. So that is amazing, including yeah. our mutual friend, Sarah Robinson. Yeah. So. It's definitely been cool to see everyone posting them, you know, on yeah. Twitter, Instagram or whatever, right? Like I see you sharing a lot of those and obviously people that I know posting them and that's been really cool to to see. So yeah, yeah. if you haven't gotten your copy yet, go get it now and you'll wait the shortest that you ever could have waited. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I think, do you have a segue question for today? Because I just made it super blunt and awkward, but... <laughs> no, you're good. I paused to take a, a sip of water at exactly the wrong time. That's so okay. I was going I was going to ask, <laughs> um, is there anything that you used to do or tried doing years ago and then came back to to do again (laughs) years later and had like a different experience with it aside from Uh, perhaps roller skating so because that was exactly the answer that I was going to give yeah um yeah because that's a very different experience um is there something else 
thinking about, you know, you like movie that you loved as a kid and then you watch it like with your kids and you're like, wait, this movie sucks or like, you or, know, or like an activity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, usually it goes the other way. I think yeah, just because when you're a kid, you don't care that much, but that's yeah. True. Um, but there's, uh, there's, there's good ones too. I'm sure. Well, why don't, while I'm trying to decide, why don't you give your answer and then yeah. I'll think about it as you're, you're, you're telling us what the thing is for you. Yeah, I I think I mean there's there's a I think a handful of things right like old games that you used to play maybe and then you play them now and you're like this is just a whole different experience or uh, uh, yeah. potentially on the other side like we uh, so this past weekend we took a little family trip the first time kind of all four of us as a family mm. of four took a little trip and it was just to it wasn't actually two I mean it was to like a different house uh, that that we went and stayed in that was like an hour away and so we essentially mm-hmm. just moved locations. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just is a very different, like going on a, a trip as as the the adult or the parent is a very different experience. Like it's not really that relaxing, I don't think. Like often, mm-hmm. like I can't remember where I heard it, but the idea of like if you if your kids are with you, it's a trip, and if your kids aren't with you, it's a vacation or whatever. Right? Like the, yeah, just yeah. the idea of like okay, it's a very different experience. Like oh, this is a fun family trip, family getaway. But as the the adult, you're there's fun to it, obviously, and you get to watch right, your kids right. do fun things, but. It's just a very different, uh, you know, preparation and packing and, and all that type of thinking through everything. But even a while, <laughs> maybe a year and a half ago, I don't know, I um, I found my old Game Boy from when I was a, a kid. And I had <gasps> the original, I had like Pokemon what? Red that was still no! in there. So I got some batteries oh and I played gosh. all the way through. This was like, I don't know, probably within the first year of COVID. I played all oh. the way through uh, Pokemon Red on this old Game Boy, uh, oh and it wasn't gosh. that hard. I got to be honest. It was like a whole different – I mean, when I was a kid, it was like, this is a huge world to explore, and yeah. it takes forever. <laughs> and as I'm done, I was like, ah, okay, I understand how to you know, level up and then do this or whatever, right? And so it like took me like mm-hmm. a week to beat the whole thing. And not not like super intensive, just you know, so nobody thinks I was playing seven hours a day or whatever, right? But, yeah, right, right, um, right, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But so that, was, that were, was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'll mail huh. it to you. You can play. You what? Yeah, no, for real. I used to love playing uh, my Game Boy when I was a kid. So you're like bringing me back to all these memories of playing mm-hmm. when I was younger. Yeah, man, those are two really good examples. I mean, I feel like the the you know going on trips and vacations, like that's that resonates with like it is very different now, and it's but it's also really I really love it too. Like I mean, I know we've talked yeah. on the show before about how you know my uh, we take our kids to this one spot every summer that um, that I used to go to as a kid growing up, and you know, and it's it's sweet going back to these places and reliving some of these memories there, but then recreating or not recreating, but creating new memories with my kids and like being able to build this foundation of of memories at um, this this spot in South Carolina really is just it's such a gift. So I mean, that I think crosses my mind. I think about. Um, even thinking about that, like we went kayaking while, you know, mm. this last summer when we went out and I used to go, you know, canoeing all the time when I was a kid. And so yeah. going kayaking with my kids, very different now yeah. <laughs> versus yeah. when I was younger. Um, and especially because, you know, when I was a kid going canoeing, it would be like on like completely flat water, like really still water. Mm. And like when we went kayaking, it was much, um, it was on an ocean. And so I was fighting yeah. against the wind, but yeah. anyways, and like getting stuck, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I mean, like, yeah, those are a couple of things, but I mean, I, I feel in a lot of ways though, 
it's hard to answer the question because I feel like there are so many things that I do today that I did when I was a kid. And I'm really grateful for that. And they do take on new meaning, like the, the things that I draw, like I used to love drawing and painting and, and doing any kind of art as a kid. And like, I'm still doing that now. And like, yeah, with my daughter and like, you know, books that I'm reading to my kids that I read, I know we've talked about this on the show, but like, you know, yeah. books that we read as kids and then getting to read them to our kids is like meaningful. So yeah, I just, I mean, I love the question and I'm sorry, I don't have like a better answer, but like, I no, kind of no, feel like it's great. any of it, like any of yeah. the opportunities to thread memories from my past into my present. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So No, I love that. Those are great. The uh, the segue there, I know uh, we mentioned this, I think, briefly in the, the recording, but we talk with James Prescott, who uh, actually in, I think, like season one, we uh, mm-hmm. started recording, uh, Steve and I started recording an interview with James and somebody was, the, p- the person above them was redoing their floor or something, right? And so there was just all this yeah. noise and we got a couple minutes in and I thought, I can't edit around this at all. And so, um, and it's yeah. taken a really long time to uh, come back to to having James on, just scheduling things. Obviously, he's across the world and, and you know, multiple shifts across life mm-hmm. and podcast yeah, and stuff right, right. And so um but this conversation is incredibly different than the conversation that we uh, had planned to have back in you know 20 2017 uh-huh it was just a whole different he was in a different place and we were in a different place and all that right and mm-hmm. so um it was a whole different conversation but i loved this one obviously we set out to have this one this time um and so i was really i was really glad and thankful to have james on and and have this conversation. I'd love to hear more about his story. I know both of you and I have been on his show and um, yeah. you know it's just good to to finally have him back on and in, in a version that we can we can share. Well with that, yeah, we'll we'll roll right into it and let folks hear our interview with James Prescott. All right. Enjoy y'all. Today, we are so excited to be joined by James Prescott. James is the host of multiple podcasts, including Poema Podcast, which explores mental health, grief, spirituality, and other topics. And he co-hosts The uh, Kryptonian, The Princess, and The Avenger, a podcast on pop culture and story. He does a lot of online advocacy in the areas of grief and mental health and has also authored four books and uh, I know is a, a longtime friend of both of ours here on the show. So James, yes. welcome welcome to the show. We're glad <laughs> to have you. Yeah, it's great to it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Sound when you describe me, it sounds like, oh wow. Yeah. I've done all those things. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. it sounds a bit weird when somebody else is describing it. It's always strange when you're a podcast host and you're used to asking the questions and then somebody else is doing mm-hmm. it you know like um, mm-hmm. so. <laughs> yeah so um, yeah, yeah but, I, but I definitely thank you. understand <laughs> yeah yes actually yes, me I, too. <laughs> I know yeah. uh both holly and i have been on your podcast and Correct. i That's think i remember right. having a similar experience where you were reading the bio and i thought well this is a little uncomfortable and also that sounds pretty uh-huh. impressive i guess like i don't just that weird you know um yeah was there is there anything that our audience should know about you that wasn't in that bio there well, if you uh, recognise my accent, I, you'll know that I'm from the UK, so I have a British accent. Mm-hmm. Um, I live near London, and yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, um, my bio kind of says everything about me and what I'm into. So, <laughs> yeah. but um, yeah, yeah, um, it, it's great to be here. Anyway, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about this stuff with you today. Awesome. Yeah, well, we're definitely glad to 
have you. I know we were joking uh, when we first hopped on about uh, you were actually one of the first handful of guests way back in 2017 mm-hmm. that uh, that we tried to have on. Uh, Steve had scheduled you and we started recording and we got a couple minutes in and uh, I think the the people in the flat above you were redoing their flooring. And so mm-hmm. we, we we tried for a little bit and I, though I was thinking, oh, I think I can edit around some of this. And eventually we said this, we can't, it, it's impossible. People aren't going to be able to hear you, and we wanted them to be able to hear you. And mm-hmm. somehow the rescheduling took five years, but here we are. So we're we're glad to have <laughs> yes. you back. And so uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, mm. So so we've interacted online, obviously, like I just mentioned, for years now, and I've definitely seen your areas of interest shifting around, changing things like that. And I know over the last couple of years, I've seen you diving into the ideas of things like grief more and more, right? Mm So I'm curious, why do you find that topic and maybe kind of related tangential topics particularly important, especially when it comes to areas of of spirituality or faith? Well, I think the reason... I've begun to dig into it a lot more recently is I've been doing a lot more grief work myself. And that was kind Mm. of as a result of tied to my spiritual journey uh, as I, what is called deconstructed and did a lot of the work around that. I began to realize it was grief work and uh, as I kind of deconstructed, I realized that religious certainty had been covering up a lot of a lot of suppressed grief uh, and trauma, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as certainty uh, tends to do. And also that I'd been using things to try and win the approval that I had lost when uh, my mother died. And mm-hmm. And that only came from doing this from deconstruction and then kind of what was a spiritual reawakening really uh, in the last few years. And so I began to, I began to understand that grief is actually way bigger than loss, that grief and leaving things behind, naming our pain, naming our trauma, naming what we're carrying is actually at the heart of personal transformation and spiritual transformation. And so I started to think about that as I experienced it on an individual scale. I began to see it more in a cultural way as well, especially given what was happening in America politically and in England as well, um, to a certain extent, that a lot of this anger that people had was suppressed trauma, suppressed grief, uh, that people weren't processing and hadn't learned to process and that certainty had taught them to kind of repress. We live in a culture that likes to medicate everything that uh that likes a system that kind of doesn't want us to that wants us to be robots and doesn't want us to deal with our feelings and mm. uh, yeah and when you begin to see it the, the more i began to see it the more obvious it became so that's kind of why i've been working so much in this area and talking about this so much in the last couple of years because it's been part of my lived experience um mm. i mean i should probably explain my background why i have lived experience with this as well yeah please and there's there's two there's two big grief experiences that i've had um and one of them was a loss or both of them were losses in a way but one of them was a an actual physical loss so there's two stories and then you know um they might take a while if to do them justice so forgive me if i take no, a while that's, no, no please um, James. you're this yeah we want to hear for sure okay all right okay well the first one, they both involve my mother. 
Um, and the first one was when I was eight years old. And so it's uh, April the 1st, 1985. Um, it's Holy Week. And uh, I, I come down the stairs and I see the front door open. I see ambulance lights outside. I go into the front room and I see my mother on a chair, um, literally not breathing, uh, literally, uh, physically mm. not breathing. Mm. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and it was, it was really strange. It was like being frozen in time for a minute as I remember it. Um, mm. I just, she was dying, Gosh, you know, yeah, she was dying. Yeah. And, uh, so, and then suddenly she is taken away, taken to hospital. I'm not, told what's happened or what's going to, whether she's coming back or if she's okay or what's going on at all uh, my dad just goes goes to the hospital we have a babysitter come over and that's it and um i don't see her for a few weeks because she's in a coma mm. she almost died uh mm. and was very lucky not to die to be honest the doctors thought she would die uh but uh, she survived but <laughs> the um the, the caveat to that was that um, she had brain damage to her short-term memory. Mm. And uh, so she was not the same person in, in some ways. In some ways, she very much was the same person. But when you lose your short-term memory, you lose a bit of independence. She could no longer work. She was a very independent woman. She was a French teacher. She, um, was, her, you know, she was about to go back into teaching after having two kids uh, and was you know going to be um, was looking to have a successful teaching career that was mm. all ended and for somebody as intelligent and independent as her that was very difficult but she was not i had she was a different person to the mother that i had had for eight years right yeah mm -hmm. even if it was just in small ways i had to adapt uh and i've talked about this a lot in therapy um that i subconsciously decided then that it was my job to take care of everybody else mm. in the family doesn't yeah. matter what happened to me. It didn't matter what happened to me as long as everybody else was okay. I subconsciously decided that myself at eight years old. Um, and this was a this is a grief experience because the mother that I had known for eight years basically died. Um, and although the person that came out of the hospital was still my mother um, and still was very much the same person in many ways, they were not exactly the same. They had changed in a fundamental way. So, yeah. Right. So that was yeah. that was my first real kind of grieving experience that I had to process that things had changed dramatically and were not going to change back um, at eight years old. Being highly sensitive, probably on the autistic spectrum, ADHD, although I didn't know any of these things at the time, but but all of these mm. things were there. So that was one thing that had a huge impact on my teenage years because Things went really badly at home, childhood trauma, neglect, you know, alcoholism, um, you know, that kind of thing. Domestic stuff wasn't nice mm. to live through. Um, yeah. But that wasn't really a grieving experience, but it was a trauma experience. But the next real grieving experience was also my mother. And uh, when I was 23 and I got a phone call one morning from my dad uh, and uh, was told that she had passed away. I'd seen her the night before and it was strange because it felt like a, in hindsight, it really feels like a goodbye. Um, mm. uh, yeah. Um, and I'll never forget it. <laughs> we had a big hug. Yeah. Uh, it was the last thing we, uh, we did. Um, so that was a nice way to 
end, I guess. Um, but yeah, yeah, she died. Um, I was 23. My mother died and she was only 52. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's young, too young, um, too young to lose a parent and too long, too, too young to die really. So yeah, that's kind of my lived experience of grief and that my mother died. Yeah. My mother died in April of 2000. So at time of recording, it's, it's nearly 22 years ago. Uh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, in terms of my spirituality, that shook my spirituality. Uh, from then on, I was questioning things, even on a subconscious level. I wasn't doing it publicly, but I, my mind had questions <laughs> that would eventually lead to me kind of starting a deconstruction journey, probably a, probably in 2005 when I read Robert Elvis. Yeah. That, that was literally the beginning of the journey, which has taken me to where I am now. It's had different stages, but that was the beginning and yeah it it was kind of grief was like the the catalyst for kind of shaking me out of certainty and um yeah. for a while i shifted into another form of certainty progressive certainty which looks like it's questioning and mystery and doubt but actually mm-hmm. is just more certainty when you scratch <laughs> the surface like because because yeah. i because i remember being part of these communities and i was growing and i was still asking questions and i was still moving forward and and eventually these guys won the people i was with and what was really tragic really is really tragic my the pastor that i had in my old church 10 years ago um he lost both his parents in the same year and that is horrible absolutely awful i got so sorry for him it's just absolute tragedy um really sad and i felt so so much for him it was um it was awful but it showed i but i was worried when that happened because i thought well he's going to go one of two ways here because i had enough experience by now (laughs) he's either going to go and retreat back into religious certainty which would not which for me and this church would not be being in this church would not be a good thing or he's going to go and keep questioning more and you know uh and he did the first thing and the church slipped a little bit back into religious certainty and i was just moving further and it was moving in it would be kind of moving in opposite directions now at that point Hmm. and um it became kind of spiritually abusive for me um which had a physical impact on me my body was all tight and bound up and tense and i was talking in scripts um the church script you know that everyone said and i began to see everything for what it was and I, I was just moving, mm. moving further away, and and eventually I left that church and found another spiritual community, which I love. Um, and but all of this was, grief mm. was the catalyst for all of this, right? Now, it, now, yeah. once I left all this behind, <laughs> I then tried to fill this this hole with with a writing career. <laughs> Um, which is when you tried to interview me last time. Um, I I had a mm. book. I tried to become a writing coach. And although it wasn't a complete failure, it wasn't anything like the success that I wanted. And I couldn't make a living out of it. And I was unemployed. And I was on the verge of losing my house. And I was on the... And suddenly all the things that I had put up as securities and certainties were gone. All of them. And that was just desolation. Mm. It was that's when I had suicidal ideation, but um, 
it was actually the beginning of a kind of spiritual awakening and transformation and and healing that's when i actually started to do the grief work um and mm. and started to to and that's when i started to realize that oh gosh like you know this is at the heart of everything um we're all carrying a form of grief we all like grief is something we all yeah. experience um yeah. it's not just when you see, when someone you love dies it's it's when you have to leave your job it's when you have to change your it's like in like the pandemic when we've all had to change how we live our lives completely mm-hmm. and leave behind what was normal you know people talk about going back to normal but it's not going to go back to normal it's not going to go back to what it was like before and that's a grieving process right like um, even the first time you your kid your child goes to school and you've got to leave them there yeah that's yeah. it mm-hmm. you know, yeah you know i'm not i'm not equating that with losing with losing a parent by the way <laughs> just to be right. clear yeah but it's right, a, but right, it right. is but it's a bit but it's a it's a big shift like when you leave a job that you love to go and maybe it's to go to another job that's a better job but if you it's a job you love and you've been there for a long time there is a you know letting go um and yeah we have to acknowledge these feelings um acknowledge this grief that we're carrying because if we don't do that it will control us like it will do it and it will do it kind of passive passive aggressively it's like i i have this image in my head of like you build you build this structure to cover over your grief uh this certainty or whatever it is to avoid dealing with it um and but it's built on sand and like mm. it's um and that's a bit biblical metaphor as well which is like which is kind of ironic <laughs> um but it won't but when it falls away you, the grief is still there so what i what, what i kind of learned how to do was build a structure that goes into my grief and my trauma allows me to go in there and experience it and feel it and process it and then come out and i'm i'm in control of it it's not controlling me right mm. um so yeah it's kind of a you befriend your grief almost you know because grief mm. never leaves you <laughs> i will never you know i'll never stop carrying the grief of what i lost but the way that i experienced that has changed and i've almost befriended my grief uh, I started to think about death in different ways and it's really healthy and been really healing. Um, and, you know, having therapy is a really important part of that. Uh, I recommend everyone has therapy. Um, mm. with a licensed we agree with quali- that. Yes. With, with a licensed <laughs> qualified therapist, I would say as well. Yes. Um, Bonus. Yes. Yes. Um, not with That's a, good. uh, not with a life coach. Um, um, yeah, that's a joke from Twitter. Actually, some people will get that. But um, <laughs> yeah. but um, but yeah. So that's the kind of long answer to why I'm why I'm interested in exploring grief and what I've been thinking about the last couple of years and how I've been processing this stuff and why I want to talk yeah. about it a lot more. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, I I mean, I appreciate so many layers of your story that you shared with us, James, and just the grief that you have experienced for you to vulnerably offer those uh, those threads yeah. to us. And then also the ways that you described how you've modeled 
um, moving towards your grief and not running away from it. And I mean, I feel like in interactions that I've had with you, you know, you know, in virtual spaces and such that, you know, you, you really do model that well in terms of not, um, not running away from it, but, but recognizing it is a part of, of the human condition. It's a part of life. And, um, and then how do we, uh, kind of continue to allow it the space that it needs, um, to feel that grief rather than stuff it and repress it and avoid it and bypass it and blah, 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 like all the things. Right. Mm-hmm. But you, I just, I just really appreciate both your vulnerability and the ways that you've modeled, you know, naming the grief and not being afraid to name it for what it is. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, I want to, I want to thank you for being willing to, to share so much of that. And I do, I think there's so much in what you said as you were, as you were talking, I was like making mental notes of like, I want to come back to that and that and that. Right. Yes. Um, yes. But, but you know, so I'll try and I'll try and remember them and, and uh, come back to them as we go. But, you know, I actually had just started in our show doc typing a question right before you ended up answering it, right? But the idea of when we typically think of grief or talk about grief, right, maybe we think uh, almost exclusively about losing losing someone we love to, to death, particularly, right? Mm-hmm. But the idea that there was there was two moments there for you, right? I mean, obviously at 23, you were grieving your mother having actually died, but then at, at eight, right? Saying, okay, the version of my mother that I knew, I have to grieve that version, right? And the way that our relationship mm. interact, like the dynamics between our relationship, that relationship is fundamentally different now. And that doesn't mean that it's a bad thing or whatever, right? Like it, it's not always a bad thing. You even referenced, you know, if you leave a job for a, a better job, that doesn't mean that, I mean, you can be excited about that and grieve the, the old job, right? Like there's, there's stuff there that you won't have anymore, right? And so uh, I think mm-hmm. thinking about grief in that terms of like, we're all kind of consistently, constantly encountering things that, that we're grieving as we transition, as we experience life transitions or whatever, right? Like I think that is, is so helpful in terms of broadening it a bit so people don't go, oh, well, you know, I haven't really lost that many people in my life or whatever. So, you know, what am I, why do I, what am I thinking about grief or whatever? But like, no, there's, I mean, there's different, obviously, scales and stuff there, but you are constantly grieving things and, and ignoring that does lead to, you know, this idea of we have to be certain about things or we have to bypass things or say, well, that was all bad or this is, you know, kind mm. of put up all these kind of rigid frameworks that, uh, like you mentioned, can translate into to anger or, or some of these other things that, you know, we're seeing on kind of erupt all over the place. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's no surprise to me. I mean, the, 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 the riots, in the capital last year when when Trump lost the election, right? All these people had put their faith in Donald Trump, right? He was the answer. He was the solution to all their problems. He was, you know, he represented the certainty almost to a lot of people, to a lot of these people. And most of whom probably have not processed any of their trauma or their grief to have a lot of emotion stored up. So when he loses, they can't deal with it. So they process it in anger and violence um, because that's the only way that they understand to process their you know, what, what's going on because they can't deal with what's really happening. And, and then people get hurt because hurt people hurt people. That's a, 
you know that that's an old uh, cliche but it's true hurt people hurt people sometimes they don't do it intentionally sometimes they do but they but when they do they don't often realize that that pain that they're feeling is not about what they think it is it's something far far deeper uh, that they've you know from maybe from childhood maybe from something that's in their life right now that they just haven't processed and maybe haven't developed yeah. the self-awareness to process um and you know culturally we do not do grief well you know i have i've had people on my podcast where we've mm. talked about um rituals of grief and how we need as a culture to develop rituals of grief like other cultures all over the world have rituals to which uh for mourning and grieving uh yeah they have and to acknowledge what's happened to 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 feel it to experience it to recognize it uh, and we don't have that as much in western culture and we need that yeah yeah as you're talking i'm thinking about kind of the maybe increase in prevalence of of conspiracy theories right whether whether yes. people kind of admit that that's what's yeah but the yep. idea that when we kind of dig into that we say okay how what what's happening there right that there's there's research that kind of ties you know situations of anxiety and uncertainty and loss of control being factors in people being more susceptible to conspiracy theories because they're they're trying to find a an explanation that fits right like if i can understand this as opposed to hey i don't know there's a there's a virus and that sucks and and i don't know the answers and nobody has a you know like all that but if people can say okay well here's like a you know well it kind of makes sense right it kind of fits that that those are factors and so the idea of can we grieve things well so we don't feel quite as much of that and maybe even grieve the 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 loss of control or the idea of like oh i understand what's happening here like some of mm -hmm. that uh mm -hmm. but if mm -hmm. we can't then we get we come to a place where you know maybe for a lot of us we go okay well i'll just you know this person seems like it makes some sense and so at least then i can be regain that sense of certainty that you were talking about right even if it's like this virus was so we all went inside so they could replace the batteries in birds because all birds are robots, right? Or whatever, right? Which I think that was like a, a, a viral tweet joke back in 2020 or whatever, right? But like, obviously I'm making light of that, but the idea mm. of people believing things and some people go, how do you, how do, why are so many people believing these things? And so often it does seem to be kind of a, a, a grasp at certainty, which yeah, which absolutely, kind of that grief. Conspiracy theories are basically because people can't, come to terms with the reality the reality of of, of certain things mm. being just uh, just random you know uh, or or real traumatic things actually happening for no reason uh in society maybe or in our lives is mm. horrible horrible it's, so, it's such trauma it's, so, it's such so traumatic like um yeah, you know, and I don't. I'm not. I'm just using this as an example. I'm not saying what, what I believe on this. I'm not saying this is what I believe at all. But for example, right? Maybe, maybe people. Maybe the idea of a random guy who, you know, say it's, I'm talking about JFK here. Say a random guy like Lee Harvey Oswald who maybe had CIA training, being able to get three shots off to somebody on his own, just deciding to do that and doing it randomly it's too difficult for people to accept. And like, how could that happen? How could that just, how, why would somebody do that? You know? And so 
they build up conspiracy theories to explain it. Oh, it must be somebody else. It must mm. be there must be some bigger mm. thing going on. You know. Now I'm not saying what I believe on this or what this is what I believe. I'm not saying what what the truth is about this because I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. I'm using it as an example, right? Because there's because you can. I mean, some of the conspiracy theories about COVID. You know, it's just it's laughable. We're like, how could you? And the problem is that what you can do is you can take isolated facts and use them to fit a theory that you already have rather than mm-hmm. objectively analyzing all the facts <laughs> and actually making an objective conclusion. Um, yeah. And people, because people have already decided what they want to believe when it comes to conspiracy theories. They're, they're just looking for evidence to support what they already believe because they can't deal with the reality. People can't deal with the reality that this, that this, this pandemic is happening, that it is real, that, you know, we don't know where it came from, but it certainly wasn't a government conspiracy, you know, and people just can't process that because they don't want to deal with the trauma of it because it's so traumatic to acknowledge that this is maybe just a random thing that has affected all of us and is difficult to deal with and is painful and is has involved us making loads of sacrifices and going through a collective trauma, but we don't want to deal with that. We'd rather just pass that anger onto some onto an individual instead of actually dealing with it you know um and yeah. i actually said when the pandemic started this is an opportunity because if we can all learn to process our grief properly as a culture that would change that would change the world like that would change yeah our nation, that would, wherever country we're from it would change it would change things because finally we'd be acknowledging what we've done and what we've experienced, like as a nation, if like um, this is like you could bring in anti-racism here, like if if Britain as a country could acknowledge what we did in terms of colonialism and empire building and all that kind of stuff, that would be a that would be a huge as a culture. I mean, not just as individuals, but collectively yeah. from the from government down, right everywhere, in schools, every just everywhere, it would we would change, we would we would progress as a country. Because people, mm-hmm. we'd, we'd be finally acknowledging what we did and the trauma of that and what it did to people and taking responsibility collectively for it and for what our ancestors did, right? That is transformative. That's why, I mean, that's decolonialism. Uh, anti-racist work is part of deconstruction. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, I'm, so doing this work can be transformative um, for us individually and collectively. Mm, That's good. Well, I, so I have had the privilege of getting to um, be on your podcast before on Puema. I mean, I know you had said earlier that both Robert and I had, but, um, but I know that um, as a, a guest and having that, that great opportunity to talk with you over on that podcast, I've learned that you've had lots of conversations with a, with a, pretty diverse, wide range of folks. And um, I know that sometimes you've done these kinds of series in which you talk about different topics for Mm. a bunch of episodes, just hearing from different folks. I I actually think as you were talking, I think I was part of the grief series that you did. You were. Um, were. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Anyway, so... so yeah, but you've done these wonderful little series that, you know, hearing from lots of different folks. So what I'm curious to hear from you is how have those types of conversations shaped your faith and your healing and your life and just um, you as 
as, as James? Like how have those conversations shaped you? That's a great question. Um, mm. yeah, ah, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, hearing other people's stories is, is a privilege and it is powerful. I, I said this on social media a few times. I really do count it as a privilege to be able to bear witness to, to people's stories and um, mm. and to be in the room as they do that. And I I have learned mm. so much from every single guest that I've had on. And to have other people who've had grief experiences and you know share them maybe for the first time um, mm. in the in, to the extent that they do. Uh, is powerful and you feel solidarity you feel like you're not alone like i'm totally going to name drop here but i i had uh, amanda held opel on um last mm. year and i remember us talking off air and on air and I, it was so uncanny that we had so many shared experiences so many shared perspectives so many little things that you would only understand if you'd lost someone that so many emotions and little things that you that you need or that you go through that you only get if you like if you lost someone and and when and when you find that solidarity it's it's powerful it's really powerful and it kind of reassures you that you're not alone and to know you're not alone is really powerful especially when you're going through some kind of trauma or grief or you have a mental health condition uh, which i have a few of to to know you're not alone in your experiences is one of the most powerful things Uh, and that i mean that's one of the reasons i love sharing stories on my podcast is because i know that when people hear them they will feel less alone because there's a lot of people out there who you know who go through similar things and i've done a series on grief and and robert was part of a series on adhd and as I was just mm. discovering that about myself. And again, to hear stories of other people helped me process what I was going through with that and learning about that. And I have learned, I've learned to see how people experience grief differently to me, but also how they experience it the same to me and, and how it's affected different people in different ways, because we all process, even when you do the work of naming your, naming your grief and doing grief work, it affects all of us differently because we're all different. And uh, just like when you deconstruct, you deconstruct and you often come out in a different place. Um, We're all different. And so that's been really interesting to see and to learn, you know, um, and that we all go in different, we do it on different timeframes. Some do it more quickly. Like one, I mean, one of the ones that really stood out to me was somebody who um, I had on the show who, lost their life partner um five or six years ago and they told me that they're they didn't really they didn't really grieve in the traditional sense they 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 moved very quickly to connection and they actually laughed as their kind of response to trauma um to grief and that i had I, i that was uncomfortable for me to hear at first but um, as I talked to her and listened to her, I realized that oh, this is a valid, this is valid. And, um, and as I've done my own grief work, um, it took me a while to get there, but my grief has kind of evolved into connection with my loved one, my mother. And it's still grief, but it's, it's a different, 
experience of grief. It's a different, it's a different part of the process. Um, um, and that's not about a five step program, by the way, these five stages of grief that everyone talks about. That is grief is not a process like where you follow five steps and suddenly it's gone. Mm-hmm. Okay. I yeah. really want people to know that because that's not these five stages yeah. of grief. They are all valid experiences of dealing with your grief. Mm-hmm. But they are not a five-step program that you follow and then you're okay. Yeah, that's they're not just, linear at all. Mm-hmm. That's that's just another form of certainty, right? So grief is circular, I have found. So I, I experience all those different stages at different points and in different yeah. ways as time goes on and you do the work. But they're still you still experience them from time to time. And that is totally normal and totally fine. We're, we're doing grief work here. You're not aiming for a destination. You're just aiming to heal and to grow and to come to terms with what has happened. Yeah. Uh, rather than kind of get to a destination where, right, I'm fixed now. I can go and do, I can go back to normal again. That's mm-hmm. not going to happen. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, uh, that's, again, we have to be really careful about that. Yeah. So it reminds yeah. me of, there's a, a, a cartoon I've seen a couple of times online where uh, there's like a, you know, a big ball inside of a, a jar or whatever. And it's, you know, grief oh, yeah. and the, the, the ball doesn't yeah. get smaller. It's just your jar gets bigger, right? Kind of your capacity to hold the grief gets bigger as opposed to expecting the grief to, to go away or anything. Just mm. uh, conjures up yeah. that kind of image. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of hearing stories, I know you were talking about hearing the stories, and I wholeheartedly agree with you, right? When we have people come on here and we get to hear their stories, like hearing your story today, right? Like that's so, yeah. that's such a kind of a sacred space. And, and you know, mm. I know neither of mm-hmm. us take that lightly. But so, yeah. speaking of hearing stories, you just uh, pretty recently launched a new podcast called mm. The Kryptonian, The Princess, and The Avenger yes. with uh, Kevin Nye, who actually has been on the show, um, and Emma Morrison. Tell us about that show, because I know you and I bonded a little bit when I was on your show about uh, superhero things, and Holly knows my love for that, but mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about about that new show. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of gave birth to, it was really a passion project, because I love superhero stories, I love story generally, I love movies, um, I love the power of story, uh, and I'm interested in pop culture, you know, and I wanted to do something to do with that, and I wasn't sure what it was. And I began talking to Kevin and to Emma, and I, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could do a show where we could explore this stuff together? And this was the last summer we were talking about it. Uh, and we kind of, hmm. so we had a kind of couple of Zoom calls and and um, and uh, Twitter DMs and chatted about it and planned it out. And then we recorded all these episodes uh, where, we, where we, we've gone into different, iconic movies uh, and talked about the themes of those those movies talked about um the character arcs talked about the stories uh talked about what they meant to us what the characters mean to us um and all of those and and all of that kind of thing and it's been really really great uh i've got to talk about movies that i love um I, i'm the kryptonian I, i'm a massive superman fan I mean, I love all mm. comic book movies. I love the MCU as well. I love Batman. I love, yeah. um, mm-hmm. but, but, um, but yeah, Superman was like my first first love. And the thing is mm-hmm. that, that, and this ties into the theme of today's episode, that most superhero stories are 
in some way around grief, right? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, Superman loses, well, he loses his birth parents because the because they send him away because their planet explodes, mm-hmm. and then because he's adop- Moses. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's right. Superman yeah. is Moses, uh, and then his adoptive father dies as well, and so and that's a big part of why he does what he does. And we talked about Superman seventy eight, the first Superman movie. Uh, with Christopher Reeve and there was a thread line in that movie where his father dies and he says to himself that oh, like, I hold these powers and I couldn't save him I couldn't I couldn't mm-hmm. stop him from dying uh, and then and then later on in the movie Lois Lane dies and until that point you've seen Superman be kind of you know that you know he's not he's not really expressed any he's not lost control right uh, he's he's been doing a job of Superman, saving people, doing the right thing. He hasn't lost control of himself, but there, but then that moment, it just, it just, he just completely goes to pieces emotionally. Yeah. And what I only realised this recently, actually, which is strange because I love this movie and I've seen it so many times. But what I realised is that him being Superman and was every time he was saving somebody, he was saving his father. Right. That was almost like his coping mechanism <laughs> for not saving his father was saving everybody else and then he couldn't mm. save lois and suddenly all that grief just comes up and it's not just about her it's about his father as well and you see it, he gets really angry and then he and then he does do something about it. he turns back time literally so that lois comes back to life and so i grief is like the like the axis of this movie and of his journey and you know so and we all know about Batman as well. Like his parents had killed in front of him, and he vows to avenge them. And becomes Batman, and Batman mm-hmm. is Batman is a method of expressing his rage and his anger and his grief. It's a it's a coping mechanism, right? It's a yeah. persona that he adopts to get all that out of his system. Like, um, not very healthy. Um, and actually, <laughs> you see in the Dark Knight trilogy, the kind of embodiment of this in the third movie of that, The Dark Knight Rises, he gets trapped in this prison. And the prison, the way to escape this prison is through this kind of, is to climb out through this circular kind of wall or pit that looks like the well he falls down in the first movie, right? When you first get traumatized by the bats, um, which actually ultimately leads to his parents getting killed because he's scared of the bats at the show. And then they have to leave the show early and then his parents get killed, right? Which he blamed himself for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... So when he's in there, he's forced to confront his 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 trauma, his grief, his like everything that's been inside of him. He has to actually deal with it. Uh, and then when he so when he escapes that prison, it's a powerful moment because he's not just escaping the prison; he's escaping the control of Batman in a sense. This he's his grief is no longer controlling him because. Yeah. All the time he was Batman, his grief was essentially controlling him. And maybe it was effective. Yeah. You know, it worked for a while. You know, and it, and it had a positive outcome to a certain extent for Gotham City. But it, but he but he wasn't. But as soon as that was done, he had nothing. Because at the beginning of that movie, Dark Knight Rises, he's got, he's, he, the love of his life is dead and he's just become a recluse. Because mm-hmm. what's the purpose of life? You know, um, yeah. And at the end of the movie, he is liberated from himself, from his past, from Batman, and he's able to go and live a new life and be as Bruce Wayne. 
Yeah. Uh, that the ending of that movie is so satisfying. Um, mm. I really I just mm-hmm. I never felt so satisfied at the end of a, at the end of a movie and a trilogy as I was at then because it like everything was just resolved and his his arc was complete. That was that was where he that's where his story should have gone and it did. Um, so I was yeah. quite, I was quite happy yeah. about that. But that, that, that's why I love these stories. I mean, Spider Man loses, loses Uncle Ben. You know, um, Captain America loses um, Bucky, right? Um, um, uh, oh, it's Tony Stark loses his parents. You know, there's so mm-hmm. many of these characters. Their their transformation into a becoming who they are hinges on some kind of trauma, and how they deal with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, that's why I think that's one thing I love about these stories because they uh, they are an example to us of of what happens when you actually start to process your grief in a healthy way, and also what happens when you don't process it. Because some superheroes become heroes because they're dealing with their grief properly. Some of them become heroes because they're dealing with it badly. <laughs> um, and there's examples of both. So. Mm. Yeah, grief again plays a really and trauma plays a really important role in those stories, and I think that's why I resonate with those characters because I empathise. I feel a connection with these characters because I like whenever I watch a Batman movie and I see that rage, like that trailer for the new Batman movie, mm-hmm. when he's beating this guy to a pulp, and you're almost and you're almost ter- worried is he going is he, is he to kill him? Like, and I felt that I was like, yeah. Like when you're the anger of grief, mm. the raw, unadulterated, untreated anger of grief is just like that. You just, you just want to, yeah, you just want to, if you find the person who did, if you could find somebody who did that, that's <laughs> irresponsible, you would want to do that to them. Mm. Um, and um, so I feel that. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't have that anger in myself anymore, but I remember what that's like. And there's yeah. this line in The Dark Knight Rises where Joseph Gordon-Lovett goes to meet Bruce Wayne and he's figured out who he is because he, and the reason he figured it out who he was is because he could spot him putting on a, putting on a mask in terms of his public persona. He could see that was a mask covering up for Mm. something else because he'd done it himself when he lost, when he lost both his parents. And, and he says that it's like this, there's like this anger in your bones and it's like, it's not just, and normal anger it's just it's in your body like there's a there's a certain type of anger that comes with grief and uh and i just call it grief really Mm -hmm. it's just raw grief it's not really anger Mm -hmm. and that's what he was talking about and i yeah i resonated with all of that and that's why i think that's one reason that people generally connect with all these stories is because we find ourselves in these characters and that's one of the things we talk about on the show on this new podcast and um yeah. But yeah, certainly one of the one of the reasons I connect so much with these stories is because so many of them have been through trauma, and have been through some of the trauma that I've been through, and it kind of makes you feel less alone, and it gives you hope as well that you can that you can yeah. overcome your demons in a sense mm. when you see these characters actually finally do that. So yeah, yeah, 
No, I love that. And mm. I think everybody's probably already subscribing to it now <laughs> as they're listening. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. might have switched over already, right? Um, just hearing your your passion for that. Um, I already had, so I can't go do it now. But um, <laughs> listener, if you want to connect with James, you can find him at jamesprescott.co.uk or on Twitter or Instagram at jamesprescott77. You can listen to the Poema podcast or the the Kryptonian, the Princess, and the Avenger, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to connect with Holly, you can find her at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. James, thank you so much again for coming yeah. on and joining us today, talking us through all of that. Any closing thoughts for our listeners? Um, my only thing would be name your grief and your trauma own it do the work work on it do it in community with people who you are safe with and who you trust uh, and do it with professional support don't hide from it don't run from it don't try to bury it and you can be free and you can be and if you do that you'll be free and you'll be transformed and you may find more about who you are as well Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.